Uh, Let me call us to worship. I'm Pastor Dan, and we are about to worship, so rise up, everyone. So we come together this morning really as one. You know, it's always interesting. We don't really come uh, for our own personal, private spirituality. We really come to be a village, to be a people. And it's been a difficult week. And so sometimes it's difficult to come in and think about worshiping God when we've had a week like this where there is yet another school shooting where a disturbed young man uh, shot and killed 17 high school students. And this just seems to be all too frequent. And we all kind of wag our head and we don't really quite know what to do with it. And so we crash together, you know, the events going on in our nation uh, and here we are yet coming to worship God. So how do we put those two together? So I think we have a lot to ponder. It puts our souls in turmoil. So why don't we do this? Let us all turn towards the cross, because during the season of Lent, we've put the cross in the back, which I think you ought to visit sometime during the service over the next several weeks. There's some very interesting uh, spirituality back there. And let me pray. We confess, O Lord, that we, the church, Christians, the hope of the world, the light in a dark place, we confess that we've too often done too little, nothing to stop gun violence. May we find our cross to bear, Lord, because you, Jesus, though you did not commit any crime, took responsibility for our sin against the Creator. Jesus, you paid the price for all of us. Jesus, you hung on the cross and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Together, Lord, as a church, we ask your forgiveness. May we take this gift of the cross and invest it in our lives and in the lives of others. May we take on responsibility in the name of Jesus. Keep us from being defined by judgment and anger and fear. May we once again remember who we are, Lord, that we are your children, children of light. For this love, this grace, this gift, we give you glory. And now, everyone, if you turn this way, and we will pray together. You have a part there to pray. It's in bold. And this is our call. Glory to you, Lord God of our fathers. You are worthy of praise. Glory to you. Glory to you for the radiance of your holy name. Glory to you in the splendor of your temple, on the throne of your majesty. Glory to you, glory to you, seated between the cherubim. Glory to you, beholding the depths in the high vault of heaven. Glory to you. Good morning, everyone. We are in the season of Lent, and for this season of Lent, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We are going to be studying the crucifixion, and we are going to do that verse by verse. So this will be an intense um, lead up to Easter, but uh, we're going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 27 with just Bible study out of the gate. Are you ready? Chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. They placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt down before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. Why are they behaving this way? New Testament uh, scholar N.T. Wright wrote a few paragraphs here as to why they're doing this that I think are, are right on. He says, The soldiers mocking Jesus had nothing to gain by dressing him up as a king and pretending to salute him and kneel down before him. They had other things in mind. They had been fighting what today we would call terrorists, Jewish rebels against Rome, desperate for liberty, ready to do anything. The Roman soldiers had probably seen some of their friends killed. They were tired of policing such a place, far away from their homes, having to keep a lid on a volatile and dangerous situation with all kinds of rebel groups ready to riot. Now here was someone who'd been accused of trying to make himself king of the Jews. He was going to die within a few hours. Why not have a bit of fun at his expense? Why not tease him, beat him up a bit? Show him what the Romans think of other people's kings. Let's let him know that someone else is, in fact, boss. I think that's a pretty good explanation of their behavior. And what do we find Jesus doing here? He's submitting to all of it. He offers no resistance. No followers come to rescue him. No divine lightning bolts from heaven come to destroy his enemies. Whatever the power is of this new kingdom Jesus has been talking about, it's not the sort of power you use to destroy your enemies. Verse 31. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Interesting that they redressed him in his own clothes because at that time, Romans liked to crucify people naked, to totally shame them in front of everyone. However, it was against Jewish law to appear in front of people in public naked. So all these, although these soldiers hate Jews and they could care less what they think, Perhaps they decided that parading someone through the streets naked during the biggest holiday of the Jewish year, when the streets are crowded with Jewish pilgrims from all over the world, was just more trouble than it was worth. So they put his own clothes back on him for the march up the hill. They can strip him when they get up there, and they do. Verse 32, along the way they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. So after all the scourging and the whipping and the beating, Jesus is now too weak to carry his own cross. For, for the Romans, it's no good if he dies on the way. They want him up on that hill, hanging on that cross alive and suffering for everyone to see. So when it looks like he may die on the way, they grab someone out of the crowd and make them carry the cross. Some random Jew from North Africa. We'll come back and perhaps study Simon the Cyrene someday, but Matthew doesn't say very much about him, and so neither will we today. Often we're asked, is Jesus carrying a whole cross or just a cross beam? The answer to that question would depend entirely upon Pontius Pilate. If Pontius Pilate had permanent posts up there on Skull Hill, 
then Jesus could just carry a cross beam and they would attach him to the post when they got there. If they didn't have permanent posts up on the hill outside Jerusalem, then you'd have to carry a whole cross. Uh, History says they did it both ways. Verse 33. When they went out, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Now, what's happening here? We have two possibilities. One is they're giving him something nasty, sour wine mixed with animal gall juice, just to mock him a little bit more. Another possibility, though, is that, and and Roman soldiers uh, did this sort of thing we know from history, they didn't often consider their pay to be enough. So they devised all these kind of devious fundraisers to make money along the way. And one of them was that you could buy wine or narcotics, um, or what you thought were narcotics in the case of animal gall. You could buy that for a prisoner passing by on the street, pay a soldier directly, and give it to them to lessen their pain during crucifixion. So one of these two things is happening. We'll come back to which one later. Verse 35. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. So our passage, our translation today says they were revolutionaries. Some of your other gospel passages say they were thieves. Which were they? Thieves or revolutionaries? Being a thief would not get you crucified by itself. Unless you were stealing things and then giving them to rebel groups to fight against the Romans or selling it to raise money for guerrilla warfare against the Romans. So in all likelihood, all of your gospels are actually correct. They were thieves who were funding revolutionaries. And that's what would get you crucified for that particular crime. Verse 39. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he's king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we'll believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so they mock him. One, two, three. If you are the son of God, if you have the power to save yourself, if you trust in God. Do you notice anything about these mock mockings from Ash Wednesday? They're the same temptations that Satan offered to Jesus in the desert at the beginning of his ministry. If you're the son of God, if you have the power to save yourself, if you trust in God, now he has to face them all again at the end. And then there's one last ironic insult. Verse 44, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. The people dying with him turn and heap insults on him. Surely this is the most ridiculous and horrible day in all of human history. And they taunt him this way all afternoon. If you are the son of God, do something. Do something about it. 
But Jesus seems to be choosing a different way. These days, our world is full of mockery. And for much of that mockery, you seated in this room are the targets. You are the subjects of much mockery in the world. In the news media and in entertainment media, for how many decades have we had to endure public mockery of the church as a place where men use their power to inflict harassment and abuse on women and children? That's been the description of the church in movies and in the news media for almost 20 years. I think the best Oscar film last year was about that topic. I went to Second City Comedy Club a few years ago. That's the comedy club where most Saturday Night Live cast members get their start. I love improv comedy. I love sketch comedy. But the night I was there, fully one-third of all the sketches were making fun of us and our beliefs. Of course, now this year, we see that the entertainment industry has been conducting itself no better for the last 50 years when it comes to the abuse of women and children including former Saturday Night Live cast members who wrote some of those jokes making fun of us. How many times a day are you jabbed on social media for your Christian beliefs? And how do we respond to all of this mockery? Very often in the church, we meet mockery with mockery. We meet insult with insult, profanity with profanity, boycott with boycott, censorship with censorship, even violence for violence. And retaliation against the powers of this world, we get frustrated and use whatever power we think we have to fight back. Is that the way of Jesus? Or is there another way? What about dying like Jesus? What about dying to our need to be avenged and retaliate? Well, that sounds horrible. It is horrible. But is dying like Jesus the only real way to peace? Let's put it in our 21st century context. You're a student. You're in school. Everyone is making fun of that outcast kid. And that kid is geeky, and that kid is ugly, and that kid is annoying. But it's wrong to make fun of them, and you know that within yourself. It's wrong to make fun of them. But are you going to stick out your neck to take up for them? and commit uh, reputational suicide. You'll be made fun of with them. People will say, ooh, I bet you like them. In my day, they'd sing a little song about you and them sitting in a tree. Nowadays, they'd give you a ship name. If you don't know what that is, ask your granddaughter. But if you make fun of them too, aren't you just as ridiculous as those revolutionaries on the cross on either side of Jesus? Those guys are being killed by the popular kids of their day, the priests and the Roman soldiers. But they join in in making fun of Jesus. They're so bought into the system that's killing them all three, they become a part of it. That's insanity. Let's say you have a bad teacher. They are a bad teacher. They do hate kids. They don't know how to teach. But it's a teacher. It's an adult. It's a it's a person with a story. Don't they deserve some respect based on something? But are you going to be the one who's respectful to them and be called teacher's pet? And the bully in your school, he he or she, they are horrible. He does treat people like they're not human. She does spread rumors and lies. 
But can you die to your hatred of them and be kind to them when the brief opportunity presents itself to you? Let's talk about dying to ourselves in our relationships. After the divorce, can you die to your resentment and make peace? Your ex is a terrible person. They are a liar. They are a narcissist. But somewhere along the line, you fell for them. Can you die to your need to assign all the blame to them? Can you suffer the humiliation of owning your part in the situation so you can be healed and perhaps someday love again in a healthy way? And your kids, they are rebellious. They are disrespectful. You are worn out. Can you still love them with a mother or father's love? Can you focus more on those good moments when they do come? Can you die to your need to receive a full, complete, and detailed apology for everything they did today? They're 17 years old. Have you finished apologizing yet for everything you did that year? Maybe you're single and Christian. You have certain standards, especially when it comes to dating. These days, if you don't have sex on the third date, you're called a prude or old-fashioned. Google it. If you don't follow that rule, word will get around about you. You may not find a date for years. Can you keep your standards or will you violate your own moral code and assign yourself a lower value? It no longer costs a lifetime commitment to have you. This month, you can be had for the low, low price of three dates. Because you're afraid if you don't, you may never be bought at all. Can you die to your fear and stick to the standards given to you? Let's talk about dying to ourselves in our professional life. Can you die to your need to have the perfect job before you'll do anything at all? Can you just work at something mundane, something boring, something less creative than you would like just to get a paycheck going until God brings you the perfect thing? That's my favorite line from Christmas Vacation. Cousin Eddie, he's been out of work for 11 years, honey. Well, yeah, he's holding out for a management position. Let's talk about dying to ourselves in doubt and faith. Can you die to your intellectual need to have every question answered before you'll put any trust in God? Because there's always going to be another question, you know. Can you leave something to faith or does everything have to be scientifically proven in repeatable and verifiable experiments? And do you hold anything else in your life to that standard or just God? And of course, we should talk literally about dying. Can you die to your belief that you were owed a long and healthy life? You are too young to be sick. No one denies it. But can you still live your life and die your death in the way of Jesus and as a child of God, even though it's a lot shorter than you thought it was going to be? I want to go back to this moment in the text in, in verse 33. When it says, they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. And we, we 
said two things were happening here. Either they were just giving him sour wine with animal gallbladder stuff in it, which is super gross, to just mock him one more time. Or someone from the crowd had paid a soldier in order to give him a wine with what what they thought was a narcotic um, to deaden his pain. Well, whichever it is, I want to point out that there are only two verbs given to Jesus in our entire passage this morning. All the rest of the verbs basically belong to the soldiers. The soldiers took Jesus. They gathered around. They stripped him. They wove a crown of thorns. They fell on their knees and mocked. They spit on him and struck him. They led him to the hill. They found Simon, forced him to carry the cross. They came to the hill. They offered him wine and gall. They divided his clothes. They stood guard. They affixed a sign over his head. They blasphemed him and mocked him some more. Jesus gets two verbs He tasted it, and he refused it. After everything else that's going on around him and happening to him, the fact that he's given these two verbs, he tasted it, and he refused it, leads me to believe that as he has done all day long, Jesus is choosing the way of pain. This was wine with what they thought was a narcotic to deaden his pain. As soon as he tasted that that's what it was, he refused it. He chooses the way of pain. He chooses the way of dying. Why? Does this really get him anything? Does this way of Jesus really get us anywhere? Bible scholar N.T. Wright has another passage I found helpful understanding this. He said, A friend of mine was leading a party of explorers to an underground cavern and tunnels. They had trained for this expedition and knew the way. Not all the caves had been explored before, and my friend was convinced that there was a way right through, bringing them out by a different route after some miles underground. It would involve them at one point going down underwater inside the cave in order to come up the other side in a continuing tunnel. Nobody had even attempted to go this way before. But when they got to the crucial point in the cave, some of the party lost their nerve. It was a stupid idea, they said. There were no maps, no charts to indicate that there was a a way through. They might go down into the water and simply drown while trying to find their way forward. Some got angry with the leader. What right had he got, they said, to push them into doing something crazy just because he had a dream of finding a new way? Eventually, he realized there was only one thing to do. He'd have to go through himself and find the way and then come back and take them with him. As he went down into the water, some of the group stood there nervously silent, but the ones who had objected laughed at him. So much for your great dreams, they said. Either you'll come back soaked and defeated or you won't come back at all. That's what happens to people who think they know too much and discover too late that they don't. Of course, I wouldn't be telling the story otherwise. He did find the way through. And eventually they followed, including the grumblers. But the point of the story, as you will see, is to show what it was like as Jesus pioneered the way through death and out the other side into the new life that he knew was there, but which nobody else understood. Jesus has been telling us since his temptation in the desert that the power in the kingdom of God is different than the power of this world. 
We don't get what we want by powering up, by duking it out, by trading insult for insult, profanity for profanity. There is another way, and it is the way of dying to ourself for the sake of someone else. Now we get to the end of the ministry, and we see that nobody has believed that message. They didn't even listen. There they all stand saying, now come down off the cross. Cry out to God to save you. Do something spectacular. We're waiting. No one is going into that cave water with him. Now he'll have to go alone. And if he comes back, maybe then we'll follow him in that way. Verse 41, the leading priests and teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. But that's just it. By not saving himself, he is saving others. He's saving us all. In a world full of mocking that we live in, does the way of Jesus really Save us. When they mock you, Jesus says, to be silent or return only kindness and love. So when I was a student in high school one day, a bully popped up in front of me right there in the hallway. I never saw this kid before. I never saw him after this event. I hope he actually went to our school. We just met this one day. To me, he looked like the love child of Popeye and Caesar from Planet of the Apes. Not the Roddy McDowell Caesar, the the scary CGI one from the most recent movies. So there he was. (laughs) And he's like this far from my face. And he says, uh, I heard you're a black belt. You think you're something. I bet I could take you. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "You're, you're probably right. I, uh, I've never been in a real fight outside of karate school, and uh, experience counts way more than training. And he took like two steps back, and he goes, oh, no. That's how old school bad taught. I'm not messing with you. And he walked away. And I was so glad because I was being completely honest. I, I really did think he was going to wipe the floor up with me. That was not a line. Um, But it worked. I was so glad. (laughs) When you see that jab on social media, ignore it. We'll return something positive and loving or just unfollow that person and be free of torment from them forever. Because escalating Facebook fights can quickly ruin a great church family. Proverbs says, without fuel, a fire dies down. What weapons do we have then to fight the powers of this world? Jesus says the most powerful weapon is love. The kind of love that's willing to die to ourself for the sake of another. Let's talk about dying to ourself for the sake of another in our 21st century context. Let the geeky, annoying kid sit with you at lunch. Be a real friend to them. Tell them the same thing you tell any of your friends. Hey, you'd be better liked if you quit doing that. And take time to learn their story. I promise you it's a sad story. 
It's always a sad story that makes people that uh, socially awkward. Be respectful to the teacher, even if all their skills are bad. Now, take this from me. Someday you're going to grow up, and that teacher you treated badly, you're going to run into them all over town. You're going to wind up working with them. You're going to wind up going to church with them. Buy yourself some peace now by treating everyone with respect. Let's talk about dying to ourselves in relationships. Now, you all know that 50% of marriages end in divorce, but did you know that only 40% of first marriages end in divorce? The rest of the statistic comes from 60% of second marriages, 70% of third marriages, and it keeps going up the more you do it. If you don't die to your need to blame someone else today, it's highly likely that this will happen to you again. Own your part. Follow Jesus into the deep, dark water and find the part of the root that is within you because that's the only part that you can change. And with your kids, love your kids. Die to your need to control and demand and be respected. Go to the family counselor together and, and find out what your kids really need. What's really wrong with your family dynamic? It's not all you and it's not all them. Guys, I think especially need to hear this next line. Counselors aren't there to pick a winner. That's what I assumed we were going for. A referee, somebody with the striped shirt and a whistle. I'd tell my story, she'd tell her story, they'd throw a flag, we'd be done. They're there to help you see your family dance and where you're stepping on each other's toes at certain turns. Are you single and Christian? Keep your standards. See yourself as God sees you, as so valuable that it requires a lifetime commitment to have you. A masterpiece often goes unsold for a long time, you know, until one who can truly appreciate its beauty and pony up the high cost comes along. Everyone else just buys the cheap replicas painted on beans at the gas station. Let's talk about dying to ourselves and our careers. Work your way up. Let God bring you the perfect career when he thinks you're ready. Die to your need to have your greatness recognized straight out of the gate. It's not the way it works. You pay your dues and you learn what you must learn. It starts out sounding like this. Ma'am, would you like paper or plastic? And then you get to move up to, oh, that's an aisle 17 and I can get you the manager. And someday you get to say, I am the manager, but I have to call corporate for that. And later when a manager calls corporate, it's you saying, this is her executive assistant, I'll transfer you. And finally, President me speaking, how can I be of assistance? Let's talk about uh, dying to ourself in faith and doubt. Can you die to your need to understand it all before you'll do anything with it? Were there one angel or two at the tomb of Jesus? Is Jonah a literal person or a parable? These questions about the Bible go on and on forever. But you've got all of human history laid out behind you to study the good and the bad. 
archaeologists have given you 5,000 copies of the New Testament text to study and compare to your heart's delight. And you've got all those testimonies from smart people in your own life that you know and respect who say they have seen the power of the Holy Spirit. It's enough to get started and for you to see the rest from the inside as you go. I'll tell you as someone who is trained as a biologist, there's only so much you can learn about alligators by reading books about alligators and looking at pictures of alligators on Google and reading blogs arguing about the nature of alligators. You finally have to go out and meet an alligator face to face to know, will they really come toward you if you make that sound? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to find out for yourself. (laughs) Just as you'll have to finally go out and find out, does God really come near you if you just do this? And of course, let's talk about dying. If you're terminally ill, you can live and die with hope and joy in the coming resurrection and the presence of God for comfort in those times of intense fear. You may also go through all of that without God, if you wish. I think it all sounds hard. I think doing it alone sounds especially hard. Doing it alone will bring you no more joy. It'll bring you no less fear. But it might fail to bring any meaning to it all. We know how the text of the gospel ends. Jesus goes into the dark waters of death and he emerges three days later saying, there is life on the other side. Now come follow me, but follow the way I went the way of the cross. Will you? Some folks have spent a a lot of love and care building this um, cross in the back and decorating it with super dangerous foliage (laughs) of thorns. Don't let your children touch that. Um, But let's stand together and let's turn and face the cross as it demonstrates the way of Jesus. And let's just spend a moment in silence and ask ourselves this morning, what does God want, where in my life does God want me to die to myself for the sake of someone else today?
Let us pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. If you don't know it by heart, you, you can turn back this way. It'll be on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's remember where that power comes from. Let's turn back to the front. Jesus gives us the Lord's table. So on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He did not say, this is the body of our enemies broken for you. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took a cup, he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death, the death that brought victory, the death that conquered death, until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the way. So when we take communion, one thing that you are proclaiming, when you reach out and tear off that bread and take that cup, is you're saying, I believe this is the way to victory over death and sin and the way to eternal life. This is the way you go through pain. Not through conquest, not through being spectacular. So when you tear off that bread and dip it in that cup, you receive what we couldn't do for ourselves. But you also say, I buy into that as the way, the power of the new kingdom to come. Amen. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith Christ has died, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Alleluia on this screen appears very small to remind us not to say it. During the season of Lent, you don't say the hallelujah. The season of Lent is a time for reflecting on the temptations of Jesus, the temptations of this world, the cross. So we withhold all of that hallelujah for the next 40 days, well, it's plus some Sundays, until we get to Easter, and then the Alleluia will be in there bigger than it's been for weeks. But this reminds us, this is a time of contemplation, of dying to ourself, of really getting in touch with what that means. So when we come to that now, we'll just have a moment of silence. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The gifts of God for the people of God each day may Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. So when you're ready, come forward, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and receive into yourself what we could not have done for ourselves, but what now we now pledge to do for the sake of his kingdom for the rest of our lives. Amen. together. Our benediction is a Celtic blessing. I really feel like it's important this Lent season for us to be solely focused on the cross and to the one on the cross as our model for everything. The world is throwing us all kinds of role models, some fair, 
some disastrous uh, right now. So we really need to cling to one role model this Lenten season, the one on the cross. So this, this prayer we're going to pray together really um, dedicates us to that. Listen as we, as we pray it together. Uh, there is one line. I'll stop this when we get to it. Let's start. Christ as a light, illumine and guide me. Christ as a shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me, Christ beside me, on my left and my right. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. That's the key to it all right there. Lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. That's the way of the kingdom. Lowly and meek to submit to death on the cross, yet that's the death that feeded death. That's where all power comes from. So when we say this in the coming weeks, really embrace that as the way to victory. The one who knew how to, to subdue death, all the powers of hell, all sin, to give us life, did it through being lowly and meek and calls us to the same. Don't miss that. Let's start there again. Lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Christ as a light, Christ as a shield, Christ beside me on my left and my right. Amen. Go in peace.